0: 37th Parallel on America's Haunted Highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.
1: Well, hello everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 187 of Pixelated Paranormal. This episode, we've got stories so crazy you might just ship yourself. That's right, I said ship yourself. That will make sense in a minute. But first... Spoiler alert, this was the episode... This was the episode that we were going to do two episodes ago. (laughs) Right, right. And we're sans Steven on this episode. He is on call because we're recording on a normal night. Well, I guess I should say we're recording on a night that is not our normal recording night to get caught back up here. So unfortunately, Steve has to miss tonight's shenanigans. Yeah, he's MIA. Yeah, MIA out there doing the second oldest profession in the world. Drive safe, Steve. Oh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hell, you'll be listening to this episode along with everybody else when it comes out on April 7th. And happy April 7th, everybody. What the fuck is April 7th? Is that a holiday? I'm glad you asked. There's actually two important holidays to celebrate. Number one, Preston, you doofus, it is Jackie Chan's birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday, Jackie Chan. Big happy birthday. Jackie Chan. If you've never read his autobiography, My Life in Action, you should do yourself a favor, pause this episode, and go read that book. It's a pretty fantastic book. If you've never done yourself a favor
0: and watched Rumble in the Bronx, you should go pause this episode and go watch Rumbles in the Bronx.
1: <laughs> yeah, you should. Yeah, you should. The great thing about that book is it kind of uh, categorizes and catalogs pretty much every single accident and injury he's received up until the publishing of that book including the infamous broken foot painted sock um, ordeal from filming Rumble in the Bronx because if you watch that movie at the very end you'll notice one of his shoes is much larger than the other one that's because he broke his foot doing a stunt but he didn't want the movie to stop production so he just put a sock over his cast and painted it like a shoe
0: yeah like Tom Cruise he does his own stunts he don't need no stunt man (laughs)
1: it's sad because he's just now having to slow down over the last few years and start using some wires and stuff like that but i mean at this point the man has nothing else he has to prove to anybody god i could i could do a whole episode about jackie chan if you want to about how he was being pressured to be the next bruce lee and he's got this famous saying about how i don't want to be the next bruce lee i want to be the first jackie chan Huh. Oh, yeah, screw it. We're going to cancel the show from now on. This show is simply about Jackie Chan.
0: <laughs> you know, the, the one thing now,
1: I, I, when
0: I was growing up as a kid, that's something my brother got me into was like the really crappy, like B Kung Fu movies that were like, mm-hmm. you know, the ones that were really badly overdubbed. And so I remember watching like, uh, God, what was the one that he was in? Like the, like Drunken Fist or something like Drunken that. Drunken Master? Yeah. Drunken Master yes. 1 and 2. So, I mean, I, I don't know, he's, I just, I love those crappy Kung Fu movies. I think they're the best. I could sit there and just watch them day after day. So it's like crap, like Ed Wood movies. Like nobody appreciates like <laughs> Plan 9 from Outer Space, but I fucking eat that shit up. So
1: yeah, Plan 9 a pretty solid movie, man. Yeah, yeah I grew up watching uh, Jackie Chan movies with my dad. Anytime they'd be on like TBS or Cinemax or anything, my dad would be like, hey, son, there's Kung Fu movie on. So I'd come running upstairs, and we'd veg out for the next two hours watching, you know, Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, any of those stay, uh, movies.
0: Oh, you are the man who killed my sister. I will seek my revenge with my fist. Nyawawaw. Like, all the lines are just classic. You can't go wrong <laughs> with a good kung fu movie.
1: That's true. Did you watch the uh, the newer uh, kung fu movie? Oh, what was it called? Uh, kung Pao Enter the Fist? No, I need to, though. Oh, dude. Dude, you really do. I got a joke for you. What do you get when you cross an owl with a bungee cord? I don't know. My ass.
0: <laughs>
1: you you really need to see Kung Pao under the fist. It's such a good film. Really? If I remember right, that was actually a kung fu movie they took and then dubbed a bunch of actors' faces over top of and then added some more extra film uh, sequences. It's just so funny. Uh, my buddy Devin and Tony and I, probably watched that thing like three or four times in a row one night it's just a funny ass movie from i think like 2002 2003 somewhere in there fuck it was hilarious man
0: now the other then you got kung kung fu hustle don't forget that one. yeah
1: kung fu hustle was pretty solid of course um and then there's still i mean tons of great kung fu movies being made um, our friend Tamar, of course uh absolutely loves kung fu movies she showed me a trailer oh, yeah, for tomorrow. one about all these people that have these, uh, they're trained to fight with umbrellas, but the umbrellas have like daggers and swords and razors all along the edges. It looks pretty intense. Really? I wouldn't lie about something so serious now.
0: <laughs>
1: now, the other important holiday is, yeah, April 7th, 2000. That was 21 years ago today, Preston. I asked Shayla to be my girlfriend. Oh. Oh, so happy anniversary, babe. Love you. Um, I doubt she's listening. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, anyway, yeah, we've been together 21 years as of today.
0: Yeah, I'll give you a pro tip is what you do is the next time you guys are in the car, you're like, honey, let's go ahead and listen to this last episode that me and Preston did. And then you play it and then she gets to hear this. And then that's where you score the brownie point right there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see. Well, we're not here to talk about Jackie Chan or my anniversary. We're here to talk about crazy stories of serial stowaways and people living in airports. Why, ask you? Well, partly because people have been sending us these stories to talk about on the podcast. And the other reason is it kind of looks like we're going to start traveling in the old US of A again. Now that people are having the option to get their vaccines, airport travel is going to start picking up again. Um, They might even let us come into some other countries again. Who knows? But there's been a lot of news lately about serial stowaways and people living in airports. So, Preston, have you heard of Marilyn Hartman before? Does that name ring any bells? No, sir. All right. Well, even if you don't know who she is, she's back up to her old shenanigans. Now, Hartman first made national headlines in August of 2014 when she was arrested at a Los Angeles International Airport for successfully boarding a flight from Mineta San Jose International Airport without a ticket. Now, she went to court and she pleaded no contest to the charges and was sentenced to a simple probation. Then the next day, she was arrested again at Los Angeles International Airport. Her bizarre streak continues at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix, Arizona. And then again on August 14th, she was given a warning for trying to enter a security checkpoint without a ticket. 12 days later, she was arrested in an airport terminal for criminal trespass. And then a day after that, Hartman was again seen loitering around the security checkpoint in the Phoenix airport. Now come again in Florida, 2015, she was arrested again and again at Chicago O'Hare in 2016 for violating a probation, which at the time had forbid her from setting foot on airport property anywhere any airport property. She was sentenced to six months of house arrest in a mental health facility for violating court orders to stay away from airports. Then again, she was arrested at Chicago O'Hare on January in 2018 after British officials had detained her in London. Somehow she hopped a plane and made it all the way to London. She was charged with one misdemeanor count of trespassing and one felony court of theft after she succeeded in traveling from Chicago to London without a passport or a boarding pass. This lady's good. Also, it's got to go on to say something about the security at airports. If this woman is a known, wanted, you know, repeat offender and she's still able to travel not being detected. And then in October 2019, she was arrested after she tried to pass through O'Hare security once again without boarding passes or identification. She was later released from Cook County Jail and put on home monitoring in March 2020 after being attacked in a jail and after the coronavirus pandemic became a concern for inmates. She was allowed to go then live in a mental health facility under the remaining house arrest of her probation. Now, anyway, she's back in the news once again because on Tuesday, March 16th, she escaped the residential facility where she was being electronically monitored. Now, I shouldn't say escape. She just simply walked out. The Cook County Sheriff's Office told CNN in a statement that it was notified that she had left the facility around noon on Tuesday the 16th and that the electronic monitoring staff immediately began trying to find her location. They attempted to contact her using the phone built into the device on her leg, but Hartman did not answer. The electronic monitoring unit investigators found found her device indicating she was traveling again in the direction of the O'Hare International Airport. I'm surprised she didn't see Mothman. As investigators headed to the airport, the sheriff's office notified Chicago Police Department that Hartman appeared to be heading towards the airport, and around 1.38 p.m., police were notified she was being seen entering, Terminal 1. The alarm was activated on her ankle monitoring device, and she was detained in Chicago by police. Hartman, who is now 69 years old, was returned to the Cook County Jail, and she appeared on court Thursday the 18th, according to her attorney. And she has not been able to post bond at this time. And then, oddly enough, today, there's a third special reason to note today Hartman is due back in court today, according to Roe Taylor, which is her her attorney.
0: Hmm.
1: Unfortunately, she continues to struggle as a homeless person within a system that is not designed to adequately address the mental health issues that she presents. Until this arrest, Miss Hartman had been stable for the last year and a half, very cooperative, and didn't have any incidents. Unfortunately, a relapse is part of what happens sometimes during treatment, and relapses must be addressed through treatment. But it is noted to say she does not show any risk of harming herself or others. That was from CNN. Right on. Yeah, kind of bizarre. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing i don't want to call it a hobby but an interesting uh, thing nonetheless just to continue to want to board planes and go travel but that's not the only interesting airport related news story that got sent to us <gasps> again from cnn.com a man was found living in a chicago airport for over three months A California man was discovered living in Chicago O'Hare because he was too scared of COVID to go back to his home in California. Aditya Uday Singh, 33, was arrested on Saturday morning local time at Chicago O'Hare. Now, this is back in January from this news report. And charged with impersonation in a restricted area of the airport and theft of less than $500, says the Chicago Police Department. Singh appeared in bond court the following day where, according to Chicago Tribune, prosecutors said that Singh had arrived at O'Hare on a flight from Los Angeles on October 19, 2020. He is then alleged to have lived undiscovered in the airport security zone until January 16th when he was arrested. Singh is reported to have been apprehended after being approached by two American airline employees who asked to see his identification. They said he showed them his ID badge and they discovered it belonged to an operations manager who reported it missing in late October. So this guy was running around with another person's ID card for three months. The assistant state attorney Kathleen Haggerty said in court that Singh claimed to have been scared to go home due to COVID and that other passengers had been providing him with food. Cook County Judge Susanna Ortiz expresses surprise at the unusual circumstances of this specific case. She went on to say, So if I understand you correctly, you're telling me that an unauthorized, non-employee individual has allegedly been living within a secure part of the O'Hare Airport terminal from October 19, 2020 to January 16, 2021? Not detected. I want to understand you guys correctly. Shit, Mothman has been living O'Hare Airport for years. <laughs> right? Maybe he's using the uh, Chicago Mothman as a uh, distraction yeah. to just kind of keep on living mm-hmm. off of them double-quarter pounders.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the assistant public defender Courtney Smallwood the, told the court that Singh is a resident of Los Angeles suburb known as Orange and does not have a criminal background. Singh's bail is said to be set at $1,000 with the condition he does not re-enter the O'Hare Airport and is due back in court January 27th. The O'Hare Airport is the busiest airport in the world for takeoffs and landings. Pre-pandemic passenger numbers can be as much as 84 million passengers per year. So this guy went on to live undetected for three flippin' months. That is impressive. And it got me thinking Presto. It's a lot like the Tom Hanks movie Terminal. Have you seen Terminal? Nope. No way. Really? No yeah, wait. Way dog, never seen it. Dude, I got to let you borrow it. I got yeah. that. I got that on DVD. <laughs> Have you, you ever better. seen the movie Iron Sky?
0: Yeah. What about Iron Sky 2, Journey to the Center of the Earth? <laughs>
1: No, I haven't. Do you have a new story relating to Iron Sky? (laughs) Fuck no. Oh, that's too bad. I wish you did. Okay, so do you know anything about Terminal, the movie with Tom Hanks? Nope. Dude, okay. So the good news is here, the movie was based off of our next story, but it is not, you know, 100% blow by blow, the actual story of what happened in real life. Terminal was a movie with Tom Hanks directed by Steven Spielberg from, t- gosh, when was this made? 2004. And it's about a guy who is forced to live in an airport uh, for a very long amount of time because he can't leave the airport. He has nowhere to go. He can't go back home. He can't go into the U.S. He's just stuck living at JFK Airport. Dude, you got to watch it. That would be a fantastic movie for you to watch with the kids. It's PG-13. There's really nothing risque or, you know, questionable, nothing gringy about it. Uh, I think you guys might have a movie night, man. Your mom might even dig this movie. Who knows? Yeah. So funny story
0: about movie night real quick. Um, Remember how you gave me the uh, digital code to uh, the shape, the shape of water or whatever that movie's called? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh
1: Uh-oh.
0: Yeah. So... (laughs) You know, I didn't Uh research what exactly was going on. And then, you know, the other night it was just me, Jeffrey, mom, and Blake. And uh, I was just like, fuck it. Let's just watch the movie downstairs. And so I was going through voodoo and I just, uh, you know, they had a sale on their monster because of God, Godzilla versus King Kong. So like any like monster mash movie was basically like on sale for like $4.99. So I picked up the mag, picked up headhunter, uh, for some reason Iron Sky two was in there because there's like, you know, Nazis on Tyrannosaurus Rex and shit. So yeah. I was like, let's watch the Meg. Blake's like, Yeah, fuck, let's watch the Meg. And Jeffrey's like, No, let's let's watch the Shape of Water. I've heard that's good. So I'm like, All right, well, whatever. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was a scene of a, a woman, um, you know
1: in the
0: in the bathtub just rubbing one out, yeah. And, uh, so that came on and mom just kind of looked over at me and, uh, I was like, ah, maybe this is not the best movie for movie night, you know? And Jeffrey's like, oh. ah, yeah, I think we should shut this off. So then we ended up watching the Meg and, uh, <laughs> The whole entire time, Blake was just kind of looking at me like judging me, like "you dumbass," like you should know oh these my things.
1: And... God, that's amazing. Yeah. That's why God made IMDb, <laughs> Preston, where you can go to the parents' yeah. guide and hit the nudity button and see what all's in the film, and it would tell you in the very beginning. Uh, spoiler alert: the lead character flicks the bean. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. that would have been good. To, that would have been good to know. So yeah,
1: see, I tell you, hey, Preston, this is an amazing movie. You have to watch it. That does not mean it's safe for your kids to watch it. That just means that <laughs> yeah. you as a grown man and and Jeffrey and even your mother may enjoy it, but no. Um, from yeah. now on, I will give you the precursor <laughs> of safe for Addie and Blake or not safe yeah. for Addie and Blake. Yeah. That'd be good. That'd help me out tremendously. So. Hey, that's all right. There's a few mm-hmm. things that happen later on that would make you have to answer some interesting questions too. So <laughs> you guys just watch that later. <laughs> Uh, Shit, that's awesome. Well, I will get you Terminal next time I see you uh, so you can watch that. It's a a pretty fantastic movie. Shit, I think I bought this movie at a used movie sale at a Blockbuster. Kids, if you don't know what that is, Google Blockbuster. Well, here is one of two main stories for the episode. This is the story of the man who got stuck in the airport for 18 years, inspiring the Steven Spielberg-Tom Hanks vehicle, Terminal. If you happen to pass through Terminal 1 of Charles de Gaye International Airport between August 26, 1988 and July 2006, you may have spotted Moran Karimi Naziri, if he thought he was just another passenger waiting to catch a flight, well, you'd only be partly correct. Though it's true Naziri's plan was to travel to the United Kingdom, a combination of laws and lack of documentation left the Iranian refugee confined to the terminal for 18 years. The beginning of Moran Karimi Naziri's story is hard to trace. Even Naziri claimed different origins throughout time. What's indisputably true, though, is for almost 18 years, with his personal belongings by his side, Naziri lived in the terminal of a Paris airport. This comes from allthatsinteresting.com. Born in Majid Salaman, Iran in 1943. Naziri traveled to the United Kingdom in 1973 to study at the University of Bradford. While he was there going to college, there was some turmoil that broke out in Iran, allowing him to join a protest against his country, against a Shah Riza Pahlavi, the Lash Shah of Iran. After college, when he returned to Iran in 1973, Naziri said that he was imprisoned immediately and then exiled for anti-government activity for his involvement in the protest back in the UK. Naziri requested political asylum from Iran, and after being denied by capitals across Europe for over four years, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Belgium finally gave Naziri official refugee status in 1981. So Naziri packed up a few things and headed for the UK. His refugee credentials allowed him to seek citizenship in a European country. And so, knowing that he claimed his mother as British after spending many years in Belgium, he decided that he loved it there and he wanted to settle in 1986 in the UK. But the ride ahead would not be a smooth one. He traveled to London from Paris in 1988 where he claims that his briefcase containing his refugee documents, his passport, and his ID were stolen on a train in Paris. So when he arrived to London's Heathrow Airport, passport control sent him back to France because without having the proper paperwork, they figured he was just somebody trying to catch a free ride undocumented. Initially, initially, Naziri was arrested by the French police, But his entry back into the airport was actually legal, so police quickly released him. However, he couldn't leave the airport without having his refugee papers because he no longer belonged to Iran, kind of like a man without a country. So with no paperwork and no country of origin to return to, Naziri's residency at, at Terminal 1 in France's Charles de Gaillet International Airport had begun. Naziri's stay lasted from days to weeks to years. With his luggage by his side, he spent his time reading, studying economics, and chronicling his experience in a sprawling diary that was said to be over 1,000 pages long. He survived by regularly eating McDonald's in the food court, he rolled his own cigarettes for himself, And many airport employees found Naziri to be a staple of the terminal. Knowing the situation, he just kind of became, you know, one of the gang. So even they would bring him newspapers and food. He kept clean and groomed by using the men's washroom, taking basically, you know, baths in the sinks, washing his hair, brushing his teeth. He even sent his clothes to the dry cleaners in the airport. Meanwhile, Naziri's situation had been picked up internationally as journalists from all over visited the airport to interview him. Regular citizens even sent him encouraging letters, including one that sent him a $100 cash voucher saying, please let him know that we are hopeful. He will have a safe, comfortable, and happy future. Signed, a concerned American citizen. Citizen. Attached was a money order for one hundred dollars that Dr. Philip Bargain, the airport's chief medical officer, cashed for Naziri. Now Naziri also caught the attention of a French human rights lawyer, Christian Bourgeot. Bourgeot became Naziri's longtime lawyer. If Belgium could at least be persuaded to issue him new documents, then Naziri would again be able to identify himself as somebody instead of simply no one. But Belgium could only reissue documents if Naziri presented himself in person. And then the irony erupted twofold. He couldn't travel to get documentation without having documentation. And Belgium law stated that a refugee who left a country after being accepted could not return to their original country. Finally, in 1999, the Belgian government agreed to send Naziri's papers through the mail, and the French authorities would then give him a resident permit. But Naziri wasn't quite happy with this outcome. See, he thought the papers were actually fake. Back at the Heathrow Airport in 1981, when he was given papers, he was given the new name, one of his choosing, Sir Alfred Moran, with British nationality. The name on the new papers he received recently in 1999 had his original birth name, Moran Karimi Naziri, and listed his nationality as Iranian. (sighs) Unfortunately, Naziri did not like it, and even though... Bougeau, the lawyer who was working pro bono for 10 years trying to help him, Naziri turned down the papers. So then he went on to remain living at Terminal 1 in the airport. Simply signing the papers and then having his name legally changed may have been a simple solution. But as it turns out, living in an airport for years can also take a strange psychological toll in the 2003 interview with GQ, Bougeot said that perhaps Naziri was crazy now, but argued he arrived there by several steps. Bougeot said that Naziri was quite lucid in the telling of his story, but over time he noticed he became more free of logic, and so his story continued to change. One time, Naziri said he was Swedish, to which Bougeot said, well, how did you get from Sweden to Iran then? Naziri replied, I made my trip by submarine. In 2006, Naziri was hospitalized for undisclosed ailments, ending his extended stay at the Charles de Gaillet International Airport. He was reportedly then released from the hospital in 2007 and put up into a hotel near the airport. Though he didn't get a flight to London, he was granted freedom in France, And as of 2008, he was living in a shelter in the Parisian suburbs while the story became the inspiration for the 2004 Spielberg film, The Terminal. You can actually read about the entire story of Naziri in his autobiography called The Terminal Man, written back in 2004. And if we go to Amazon right now and look up how much this bad boy will cost you, It'll set you back with Amazon Prime. Free shipping, folks, for a cool $600. Apparently, it is just not in print anymore, and people treat it like a hot commodity like every freaking thing else. But I'd love to read it. Maybe if I can find a uh, digital copy of it, we can give it a spin. But yeah, that is the story that inspired the Steven Spielberg film Terminal. And I'm still surprised you haven't watched that movie, dude. That blows me away. Yeah.
0: You know, back in 2004,
1: I didn't get it out, you know, a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) With the price of airfare going up higher and higher every single day, what would be an alternative to get from point A to point B? Fucking stowaway, man. Yeah, or screw that. Why not just ship yourself, Preston?
0: Fuck yeah.
1: Preston, have you ever heard the story of the guy who shipped himself from London to Australia? That's a negative, ghostwriter. All Alright, well, let me just tell you the tale of Reggie Spears, the man who shipped himself from London to Australia. So Reggie Spears was a phenomenal athlete, and he was working his way up to be part of the Australian Tokyo Olympic team in 1964. In 1962, he was on his way to becoming a very, very well-off athlete, but he suffered an injury. So those dreams of joining the Olympic Australian team were crumbling in front of him. So he did what any of us would do to prove himself, Preston. He went on an Olympic training tour across the globe, he would go on and participate in these different games, these different trials around the world. And he ended up in London. Now, when he was in London, he still couldn't quite recuperate after the severe injury he suffered. So unfortunately, after spending all his money traveling the world, trying to show off, trying to get scouted by any Olympic coach, he found himself penniless and jobless. So he did what most of us would do, and he found himself a job working at an airport. While working at the airport, Reggie decided that it might just be easier for him to ship himself back to Australia because he couldn't afford an airplane ticket. So Spears knew the maximum size of a crate that could be sent by air freight. He had been staying with a gentleman by the name of John McSorley in London and persuaded one night over a couple beers at a pub for McSorley to help him build a box in which he could ship himself home. He told Mick Sorley the box had to be exactly five feet by three feet by two and a half feet. Sorley knew Reg and thought, well, he's going to do this regardless. So if he's going to do it, I might as well help him just to make sure this thing is done right. More than one set of eyeballs gets to look at it and we make sure he gets back to Australia safe. So they built a giant crate to Spears' exact specification. The crate would allow him to sit up straight legged or lie on his back with his knees bent. Each end of the crate were held on in place by wooden spigots, which operated from the inside, so Spears could let himself out or in from either end of the crate. He was fitted with one large strap to go around his waist and two more straps to put his arms through or at least hold on to in case the crate were to be tumbled or rotated or laid on its side. That way he could avoid any suspicion from anybody, That a person might actually be inside the crate, which was actually labeled as a shipment of paint addressed to a fictitious Mr. Graham at a a fictitious Australian shoe company. Although the cost of sending a large heavy cargo crate would be more than a passenger's seat, Spears knew he could send himself cash on delivery and then worry about how to pay the fees once he arrived in Australia. So, Reggie packed into the box along with some canned food, a flashlight, a blanket, a pillow, and two plastic bottles one for water and one to relieve himself in. Spears was loaded into an airplane on Air India bound for Perth, Australia. Although Spears wanted to ultimately get to Adelaide, Perth was chosen because it was similar. Perth was chosen because it was a smaller airport. Now, immediately starting off his trip, he endured a 24-hour delay on the tarmac inside the airport because of a huge fog storm that came through London. So while he was in his 24-hour stay, he let himself out of the crate once the plane was in the air. So while he's up there, among all the other cargo, he gets out of the box because he's just dying to take a piss. And so while he's in the airplane, he found an empty pop can and so he pissed into the pop can and set the can of piss-pop on top of the crate. Then, as he's stretching his legs, walking around, kind of just, you know, poking around, being a little nosy at whatever else is being shipped alongside of him, he feels the airplane start to descend rapidly. So he panics. He jumps in the box, leaving the can of urine on top of his crate. Now, when they land in France, the French baggage handlers in Paris thought that the can's unsavory contents had been left for them as a joke and made a lot of unkind comments about the London aircrew. They were saying some terrible things about the English, but they didn't even think about the box. So I laid there, I kept quiet, and they just passed me on through onto the next airplane. The next stop was a long journey back to Australia, involving a stop in Bombay, where the baggage handlers accidentally dropped the crate containing Mr. Reggie, and it landed upside down. Now, because they had to refuel the plane and get a couple other things before they got back up in the air, they left him upside down in his crate in the middle of the Bombay Airport, where it got so hot inside of the crate, he actually stripped down naked and was in there for almost eight straight hours, almost passing out due to the sheer dehydration alone. He said, They had this thing on its end. I was on the tarmac while they were changing me from one plane to another, strapped, but my feet were up in the air. I was sweating like a pig, but I didn't didn't give up. I waited there patiently, and eventually, before I passed out, they came and got my crate and put me on to another plane, where I soon cooled off. When the plane finally touched down in Perth, the cargo hold was opened and Spears heard the Australian baggage handler swearing about the size of this big-ass crate they had to unload. As soon as he identified their accents, he knew he was home. I mean the accents. How could I miss it? I'm on the soil. Amazing. Wonderful. I have made it. I was grinning from ear to ear, but I wasn't going to let them know that now I'm here. I've almost pulled this entire thing off. I knew they would take the box to a bond shed for storage, so when they put me in the shed, I got out straight away. There were all these cartons, one of which was a big carton shipment of beer. I didn't drink, but boy, I cracked open a can of that beer to celebrate, and downed the whole entire can. Spears had survived for three days all in all, traveling in the wooden crate, but he still faced the biggest challenge of all, getting out of the Australian airport but fortunately, Lady Luck was still with him. He said there were some pretty good tools inside the storage facility, so I just cut a hole in the side of the wall and let myself out. There was no security in sight, so I put on a suit that I had packed in my bag so I would look cool. I jumped through a window, walked out onto the street, and hitchhiked a ride home. Simple as that. However, he was just about to be found out. Can you imagine, Preston, being all the way to the end? Do you think you pulled off one of the biggest heists in your own personal history? And then someone's going to rat you out as soon as you land on soil? Bastards. Back in England, his roommate, John McSorley, who had built the crate and even personally delivered Reggie to the airport, was getting desperately worried about his friend. See, Spears made one fatal mistake. He did not contact Reggie. I'm sorry, he did not contact John McSorley when he landed on Australian soil. And so, unfortunately, McSorley contacted the police and told them he was desperately worried about his friend. It was an honest effort to find out what happened, but unfortunately, the media caught wind, and quickly Spears became a sensation across Australia he said i got a telegram from a renowned australian politician saying a gallant effort by a real aussie here's five quid and in the end the airline after he was found out did not make him pay the shipping fees I'd never seen anything like it, said Reggie. It scared the hell out of my mom with the whole street being blocked off by the media. It would go on for weeks. It was pretty wild. See, when he got back and the media caught wind, he tried telling his family what he had just done. But even his wife wouldn't quite believe that he would be that dumb and that lucky to literally ship himself all the way from London to Australia in a big wooden box. But the media and also lots and lots and lots of Aussies began flooding the street where people would line up for almost an entire block just to catch a sight of this guy the air industry insiders say something like this would never happen now because the hold is usually pressurized and the temperature will usually be just above freezing so all the cargo won't spoil and now all cargo being loaded into planes are screened for security reasons specifically to find people hidden away inside crates. So Reggie Spears would go on to be the man who shipped himself from England to Australia. But the story doesn't quite end here, Preston, for our dear friend Reggie. After so many years, you know, not quite, probably, let's see here, after about 10 or 12 years, Reggie Spears disappeared from Adelaide after he was being charged with conspiracy to import cocaine. Later in 1984, he was arrested in Sri Lanka along with a lover and sentenced to death for drug offenses. Whoa. Although he successfully appealed against the sentence and spent five years in jail in Australia.
0: Damn, here in the States, if you have drug offenses, we just put your ass away for 20 years. We don't kill you.
1: Damn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, I didn't want this episode to be nothing... But Reggie Spears, but yeah, there's a whole epilogue to his story about how he tries to use his know-how of not just shipping and receiving cargo, working at an airport, but also how to ship himself. He went on to try to uh, traffic lots of drugs and uh, fled Australia, went to Sri Lanka, got found out in Sri Lanka, and then almost got sentenced to death, somehow managed to get himself off, and just spent five years in jail in Australia. Damn. Yeah, such is the story of Reggie Spears. Oh. Yeah. To finish things off, I want to talk about one more guy who attempted to ship himself. This is published back on 2017, November 7th from littlethings.com. A man claims he actually shipped himself from the UK to Los Angeles in a wooden box. The trip was taken, supposedly, by a YouTuber named Killam, who claims he was inspired by a story of an Australian man who shipped himself from London to Australia to make it home for his daughter's birthday. Killam claims to have shipped himself places on not one but three separate occasions. However, this attempt is the first time he has done it by airmail. In order to decide where he would go, he bought a map and randomly decided to choose a destination. He simply tossed a dart at the map. Now, according to the dart, the winner was not United States, but actually the Pacific Ocean, so he slid the dart over and chose Los Angeles. By air, the flight from London to L.A. should take right around 11 hours and 15 minutes. Anybody who has ever enjoyed air travel will know that there is a lot of added downtime involved, too. According to FedEx, the shipping costs from London to Los Angeles for a roughly 180-pound package internationally, would range between $1,294 to $1,973. That being said, Killam is not so concerned with the cost as much as he would be completing the challenge, part of which involves him making his very own shipping crate at home for what will probably be over a 24-hour flight. Of course, the crate needed to be properly marked so it would be handled with care throughout the journey. So, in a big magic marker, he wrote, fragile on the side of the crate now atlas obscura goes on to say that shipping yourself isn't nearly as dangerous as it used to be as improved technology and things like temperature controlled pressurized cargo holds make it a little more comfortable although we are not folks pixelated paranormal is not suggesting you ship yourself you can ship your pants but don't ship yourself Still, the practice is strictly forbidden by FedEx and USPS policy. None of the cons associated with shipping yourself seem to deter Killam, who can be seen here gathering supplies in a picture documenting his journey ahead. Non-perishable foods, water bottles are king on the situation. He also had to be careful avoiding salty foods that would make him too thirsty or make his bladder overreactive. overactive. The $1 million question, though, Preston, is... How does he do his business? How does he pinch one off? Dude, you him! shit in a bucket or piss in a bottle. There you go. Killam seemed to think of that because he bought a potty training toilet to pack into his crate. Before sealing himself inside the crate, Killam showed us his setup. He brought enough food and water along with him to last a few days, a blanket, his potty, some forms of entertainment, and equipment to film himself. According to Killam, his first night was spent inside a warehouse. He would be loaded into an airplane in the morning, but had no idea for how long. Spoiler alert, it can get very cold in a cargo hold. The passenger cabin may also seem a little chilly. But take Killam's word for it, folks, how uncomfortable it apparently got to stay folded in a crate for more than a day in an extremely cold room. By the end of the nearly 12-hour plane ride, Killam says he had eaten most of the food and only one bottle of water remained in his stash. He also had to duct tape his potty shut to seal off the smell from all the browns he took to the Super Bowl. He admits that his plan didn't work as well as he may have hoped, but can we be surprised? Despite the bumps and discomfort, Killam seemed to arrive in Los Angeles to the hotel where his dad was staying and waiting to meet him. Kill him got the good old stretch he didn't get while well locked inside that box and got a well-deserved shower because if anybody needed to take a bath, it would be a man who had a shit reed diffuser in the box right next to him. Needless to say, he made it in one piece and it's hard not to be impressed by his determination. So my question here would be, is there a video of the actual trip? We'd have to go to YouTube to figure that out. But what do you think, Preston? Do you think this guy really did this, or is this just a load of poppycock? I think
0: it's a load of fucking shit.
1: <laughs> uh, let's see here. Kill him shipping himself. Kill him shitting himself. He says, I mailed myself in a shipping container, and you won't believe what happened. Well, apparently you can go on YouTube and find videos of Killam uh, shipping himself on more than one occasion. I have only shipped myself once as an adult male. I shipped my pants outside of Benton, Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you have it. There you have it. But this got us thinking, too. This is all about airports, people living in airports, shipping themselves from airport to airport in crates, surviving for 18 years, living in an airport. Preston, where are some other strange places people have been found living outside of airports?
0: Well, so this first story is kind of um, not so much like, you know, living in a strange place, but living in a strange condition. So a woman in Michigan lived with her dead roommate's body for up to 18 months because she was lonely. Charles Ziegler was 67 years old and suffered from emphysema when he passed away. Instead of reporting his death, Ziegler's 72-year-old friend, Linda Chase, with whom he'd lived for 10 years, propped his body up in a chair in front of the television. She kept the body clean and dressed and talked to the mummified remains while watching NASCAR. Chase was investigated for Social Security fraud for continuing to cash Ziggler's checks after his death, but that doesn't appear to be the motive for keeping her friend's corpse. When asked why she had done such a thing, Chase said, I didn't want to be alone. He was the only guy who was ever nice to me. So it's kind of like a weird weekend at Bernie's, but it's weekend with Charles. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Wow. Yeah, what's weird is like... It wasn't like they buried the body and preserved it, you know, but all like the formaldehyde and all the different embalming fluids. Mm-hmm. Like, no, this guy was just like fucking rotting away in a fucking chair. And she's just like, what do you do today, Charles? I see your finger fell off. Do you want me to sew that back on for you, Charles? It's <laughs> It's just kind of creepy. Like yeah. that fucking house had oh. to smell, man.
1: Yeah, it had to smell, man. We're watching the uh, John Gacy documentary right now on Peacock. And supposedly he had to dump like hundreds of pounds of lye underneath his crawl space to uh, get the smell. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty pungent. And
0: then, hey, uh maybe you're the outdoorsy type of guy and you want to live off the grid. Well, a 56-year-old man in New Mexico was found living in a cave on property that belonged to the Department of Energy. Roy Moore's makeshift <laughs> abode was equipped with a bed, front door, wood burning stove, solar panels, and a satellite radio. He had been living in the cave for four years without being detected, but then finally, smoke from the stove drew the attention of the authorities, who also discovered marijuana plants on the property. Moore and his belongings were removed, and he was charged with a mi- misdemeanor and drug offenses. Wow. Yeah, and then finally, Impressive. this is something my brother my brother would do. So this sounds like a Jason story. When a woman in South Carolina heard noises coming from her attic and nails began dropping from the ceilings, she had a feeling that something just ain't right. When her yeah. grown son, yeah, when her grown son investigated, they discovered the mother's ex boyfriend sleeping in the heating unit full of coats. Well, he had been released really? from yeah. Yeah, he had been released from prison two weeks prior and had lived in the attic ever since. Not only was the woman unaware that he had been released, the couple's relationship ended 12 years prior to this. Adding to the creepiness, cups from fast food restaurants filled with human waste were found nearby. The man had also rigged ceiling vents so that he could peer into his ex-girlfriend's bedroom.
1: (laughs) Ooh, oh man. Dude, like, there's not a lot of terrestrial things that really honest to God, scare me people living in your house, unbeknownst to you really creep me the hell out. Yeah. Whoo, Yeah. It really gets under my skin, man. Um, my buddy Jordan, when I was growing up, we would go out behind his house on second street. Um, Kaylee, if you're listening, um, I think, I think the house you live in is either next door on one side or the other of my friend Jordan's house. But anyway, there was a house catty corner to his, whose backyard's connected. And we found a um, prowler living underneath these people's house. And this goes to show you how stupid kids are. Like he kept telling me, he's like, yeah, there's a guy that lives under that house. There's a guy that lives under that house. My mom won't listen to me. My mom doesn't want to talk about it. She just, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, one day he takes me over there. He's like, do you want to see where the prowler lives? And so we walk over to this house and it's like a two story house. And it's one of those where like, I guess it'd be a three story house. Cause there's a basement too, but to get to the main store, you have to walk up, you know, half a flight of stairs to the front porch and then go inside. So all along yeah. the house, there was like this, like wood paneling. Um, it wasn't like a giant porch. It was like wood paneling that was like hammered to the house. Kind of like a weird, like wood siding. There was a panel of that siding, probably about a three-foot square, you could grab, shake, and move over. And inside of that was a lamp, a flashlight, milk crates, magazines, a cot, a sleeping bag, a pillow, and various food drink items that were underneath this house. And there was indeed a guy living in the crawl space. Whoa. And because we were just dumb, ignorant children, uh, we never told adult because, you know, being in second grade, he tried telling his mom. She didn't want to hear it. And so I'm like, oh, well, I mean, if his mom doesn't care, it's got to be okay, right? So, uh, yeah, one of the few regrets I have as an adult is looking back on that and not calling the police because I don't know whatever happened. Oh. Yeah. So uh, maybe it's that that stems my unbridled fear of someone living, you know, in my attic or in my crawl space. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in uh, 1978, a team of geologists in Siberia were stunned to discover a family of six living on the mountainside miles from the nearest civilization. The Lykov family fled religious persecution in 1936 and lived in the wild for the next 40 years. The two youngest children had never seen a human being that wasn't a member of their own family, but they were aware of their existence. Their language was distorted due to the isolation and uh, they had never seen bread, so they're like, holy shit, This what is this magic that you have that's sliced bread? <laughs> Forget sliced, what is bread? <laughs> yeah, what is bread? In a uh, single room, the family survived on a diet of potatoes, ground rye, and hemp seed, and hadn't eaten meat until the late 50s when their younger boy taught himself to trap. Their shoes were made of bark, and their only reading materials were prayer books from the, the family Bible. In 1961, cold weather destroyed the family's crops, reducing them to eating bark and shoe leather. The mother died of starvation during this time, making sure her children had enough to eat. After their, their discovery, the Lykovs remained in the remote home, accepting only a few useful items. Three years later, three of the Lykov children died within days of each other. Their father died in 1988, leaving Agatha, the only remaining child alone on the mountain, where she has chosen to stay for another 25 years.
1: Holy cow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, like, if that's the only life you've ever known, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, fuck people. Stay on the mountain.
1: They, do they at least get bread delivered to their house?
0: I don't know. And then uh, I found a story from France. So, speaking of France, we have another story from France. uh, (laughs) Because apparently they're, you know, they have backwater laws there. So, a 50 year old man in Paris was found living in a small room with a slanted ceiling, which only had 1.5 square meters, so 17 square feet of inhabitable space. People, we call that a tiny home, which is legal in the United States. However, In France, that was considered a barely enough room to stand, and the man had lived there for 15 years. The rent for this minuscule living space was 340 euros, or $442 a month. When asked how he coped with the accommodation, he told a French radio station, I come home, I go to bed. The landlord (laughs) found himself in hot water because French law says apartments in Paris need to at least be nine square meters or 97 square feet and include a shower so guess what no tiny home living in France
1: wow that's
0: kind of a bummer yeah live that's on the true. wild side France tiny Yuck. home <laughs> fuck it's, it's 2021
1: that's you true. french bastards that's true it is <laughs> Well, I'll be damned, man! You got any more? Uh, let's
0: see. Uh, an eight-year-old from uh, Camb, uh, an eight-year-old Cambodian girl who disappeared with her sister while tending buffalo was found living in the wild after 19 years. A villager saw Roshim Ponanang emerge naked from the jungle and attempted to steal his rice. He described her as half human and half animal. According to the police, she had no intelligible speech. The villager and his friend caught the woman whose father identified her by the scars on her arms. Attempts to uh, reintegrate the woman failed. She was unable to learn the local language, preferred to crawl rather than walk, refused to wear clothing. She eventually fled back into the forest. Uh, Some are skeptical about whether this woman truly was Rosham Penanong. They believe it unlikely that an eight-year-old girl could has survived such harsh conditions on her own
1: and her father has refused the DNA test. Wow, interesting. Did you ever read the story about, oh gosh, what was her name? Um, The girl raised by monkeys, or the girl raised by wolves out in the jungle? Yeah, Marina Chapman, uh, raised by monkeys. Yeah. Oh, we should cover that sometime, man. I know it's not necessarily paranormal. Well, hell, this episode wasn't paranormal. It's just unusual and strange, but... um, Yeah, that's what we do, unusual,
0: strange... So. Yeah,
1: a little detour from the norm. That's fine every once in a while. Yeah, Marina Chapman, raised by monkeys. That, whoo, who, who, that's an incredible story. Well, cool, man. Thanks for dropping the little cherry on top this Sunday for us. Yeah.
0: And Jason, so. if you're listening, stop living in your ex-girlfriend's attic, okay? It's not oh,
1: cool. yeah. <laughs> it's got to be hard yeah. lugging all those records up into the attic every time you go up there. Yeah. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed this little uh, detour from the paranormal. Uh, we want to maybe do some more stories like this down the road. Maybe kind of keep it a little more unusual, strange, a little less spooky once in a while. It's kind of nice to break from the usual. But uh... Steve, sorry you uh, could not join us to record the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this as well. You'll be back with us next time. Presto, I think it's high time we get back to doing some cryptid encounters. What do you think? Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. I, uh, I've i been thinking it's been a while. There is a brewery. I can't say who it is, but there is a, a craft brewery somewhere here in the U.S. that I've been chatting with, wanting to do some, um, some stories with about their local folklore. And it got me thinking, like, it's just been a very, very long time since we've done a a really nice cryptid encounter. So if we don't get one done for episode 188, I will drop a fatty for you on episode 189 because I got a good one. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we better jump out of here for now, uh, but thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on the episode. Please, if you haven't already, please check out 13 nightmares, our side project horror movie podcast. We just dropped our third deep dive episode into the West Craven movie scream. Check out the rest of the shows on the Pixelated Sausage Network and Amazingly Baca, Pixelated Sausage. Check out the Instagram page, P-X-L-P-A-R-A-N-O-R-M-A-L. That's P-X-L Paranormal. We've also got the Facebook page, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Send us your personal paranormal stories. I think we're going to do another listener story episode come for our 200th episode. That'll be this summer. So send us your stories to uh, pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We would love to hear what you have to say, what you have experienced in your own life. And also, if you'd like, send us a voicemail. We've got a Google voice number set up. 913-662-662. 3144 That's 913-662-3144. We would love to hear what you have to say. I think those messages can be right around two, I think three minutes long. So if you get cut off, just call right back and finish it off. Or if that sounds a little too complicated, tell us your story into your phone and send us the MP3, send us the voice memo. We'd love to hear it and actually have listeners hear your strange tales in your own words. That'd be awesome. Presto, what don't do you got forget
0: for us? the us? Uh, don't forget the YouTube channel because we're up to 85 subscribers now. So if you haven't checked that out, get your butts over to YouTube. Hit like, hit subscribe, share it with all your friends. I know YouTube is kind of a weird place to listen to podcasts. But my old uh, fuddy-duddy cousin out in Arizona who's not, like, into technology, he just discovered our podcast by YouTube. And uh, so, uh, you know... That's that's another
1: avenue. So get on there. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Let's blow that place up. That'd be awesome. And now that you're kind of in your own little studio space, um, for these YouTube episodes, maybe we could start throwing some video on, man. Um, do some video oh, yeah. chats and stuff like that. That'd be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: coming up in May, I've been working up a little party as long as everybody um, gets the time off. I'd like to do a five-year anniversary show for us and with that um it'll kind of fall outside of our normal episode so it'll kind of be a bonus um i want to do a pixelated paranormal five-year paranormal beer celebration for us just to come over hang out on the deck have a few beers chit chat and we can do some videos some live you know um facebook live stuff like that and just uh, just go over and chat talk about some uh unusual things these beers are based off of because I'm currently tracking down 10 different paranormal themed beers and I've got some real fun stuff. Um, should have a nice little surprise rolling up for us uh, if everything goes to plan, but uh, yeah, it'll be fun. We'll have that to look forward to as well because our five year anniversary will be here in just about one more month from now. So hard to believe it's been five years.
0: And then on uh on that note, if you need a beer, if you want a beard, If you want a beard that's better looking than somebody living in an airport with their little, you know, disgusting hobo sink washed beard, (laughs) check out BigDobbsBeardBomb.com and use promo code P-X-L-P-A-R-A for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like Dundee Cedar, Bay Rum, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, and Classic.
1: Hell yeah, shout out to Big Dobbs. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by the Pawnee and Seneca CD Trade Post. Say hello to our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang down there. And it's been long enough now. Um, Things are getting a little safer. People are getting vaccinated. I think it's time we get back together with John and Leslie and do some more CD Trade Post episodes too, man. Do some interesting dives into uh, paranormal movies. It'd be a lot of fun to do another one of those. Heck Yeah. Sweet action. Cool. Alrighty, guys. Well, I think we'll let you go now. I'd like to say until next time, on behalf of Steve, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway.
0: The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and
1: the strange.